He made his name with a highly accomplished erotic narrative poem freely adapted from Ovid's Metamorphoses, in which convention is flouted and gender is bent as a female woos a male. Among his friends and drinking companions were poets and playwrights, such as Ben Jonson and the Warwickshire man Michael Drayton. Some of his early theatrical works had mixed success. One of them was a parody of the older conventions of drama so clever that many of the original audience members failed to see the joke. Another was a forceful study of misogyny set in Italy. His later plays pioneered a new genre of tragicomic romance, full of sea voyages, families lost and found, mistaken identities and pastoral interludes. They worked particularly well in his acting company's intimate new indoor theatre at Blackfriars, targeted at a sophisticated and well-to-do audience of lawyers and citizens. At the end of his career, he worked closely with the prolific dramatist John Fletcher. Who knows where he would have taken the drama had he lived. But from 1613 onwards, he wrote no more plays. Ill health may be presumed. He died in the spring of 1616 and was buried in Westminster Abbey beside Geoffrey Chaucer and Edmund Spencer, the greatest writers in the language. Elegies of praise and mourning poured from the pens of the leading poets of the day, many of, him knew, many of whom knew him intimately from their collaborations in the theatre. His immortality seemed to be assured when, after his death, his plays were gathered in a folio volume. I am, of course, talking about the life, work and death of Francis Beaumont, author of the Ovidian poem Salmachus and Hermaphroditus, the parodic knight of the burning pestle, and with Fletcher the comedy of the woman-hater and the tragi-comic romance of Philaster or Love Lies A-Bleeding. During the Restoration era of the late 17th century, the plays of Beaumont and Fletcher were performed twice as often as those of Shakespeare. But fashion changed in the 18th century. Beaumont had been eclipsed, his place in the House of Fame taken by the man from Stratford, who died seven weeks later. The monument erected in Shakespeare's memory, not in Westminster Abbey, but in the parish church where he is buried in his own town, says that he has the genius of Socrates, the judgment of Nestor, and the poetic art of Virgil. Before long, a writer called John Weaver visited the church and transcribed into his notebook the words on the monument and the epitaph on Shakespeare's tomb. And in the margin opposite the heading Stratford-upon-Avon, he wrote William Shakespeare, the famous poet. Then in 1619, a minor poet named William Bass admired both the monument and the man in the grave below it. Under this carved marble of thine own, sleep, rare tragedian Shakespeare, sleep alone. Local poet Leonard Diggs soon chipped in, suggesting that Shakespeare's real immortality would come through thy works, by which outlive thy tomb, thy name must. In the late 1620s, a book collector transcribed into the margin of his copy of the Shakespeare folio his own transcription of the poem on the monument, together with a clunky poem of his own. Here Shakespeare lies whom none but death could shake, and here shall lie till judgment all awake. When the last trumpet doth unclose his eyes, the wittiest poet in the world shall rise. And in 1630, the author of an anonymous pamphlet recorded, travelling through Stratford-upon-Avon, a town most remarkable for the birth of famous William Shakespeare. 
Four years later, another visitor spoke of the neat monument of that famous English poet, Mr William Shakespeare, who was born here. These half-dozen early references to Shakespeare's tomb and monument show that he had quickly become Stratford-upon-Avon's favourite son. But his national and international posthumous fame was only established when his fellow actors gathered 36 plays in the folio-sized volume called Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, published in 1623. The arrangement by genre was a self-conscious attempt to turn Shakespeare into a classic, the author of tragedies to match those of Seneca, histories that offered a dramatic equivalent of Livy and Plutarch, comedies worthy of Plautus and Terence. For all sorts of reasons, the immortality of writers is not assured. There were many successful and admired dramatists in ancient Athens, but the only survivals in the corpus of Greek tragedy, other than fragments, are 33 plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. According to Ben Jonson, in a poem that we will come to, Shakespeare was a worthy successor to the Roman tragedians, Pacuvius, Accius and him of Cordova dead. But the only one of those whose plays survive is the unnamed third, Seneca, who came from Cordova. Johnson only knew Marcus Pacuvius by way of some admiring fragmentary quotations from him in Horace and Cicero. All his tragedies are lost, as are the 50 or so plays of Lucius Accius. As too, of course, are the vast majority of the plays staged by producer Philip Henslow at the Rose Theatre, the home of the rival company to Shakespeare's. And for that matter, so are many of the plays of Shakespeare's own company, including his Love's Labours One and Cardinio, which he co-wrote with Fletcher. Even when a playwright's body of work is gathered and preserved for posterity, there is no guarantee of his continuing fame. The Puritans closed the London theatres in 1642. Had history gone differently, they might not have reopened, as they did with the return of the monarchy in 1660. As it happens, when the theatrical profession came back to life in the Restoration era, the plays of Beaumont and Fletcher, which had been collected in folio, were staged twice as often as those of Shakespeare. Their romantic style and monarchical sympathies were more in keeping with the age. But in the course of the 18th century, the taste for Beaumont and Fletcher declined as precipitously as that for Shakespeare rose. The one non-Shakespearean play of the Elizabethan era that remained a theatrical hit throughout the 18th century was Philip Massinger's A New Way to Pay Old Debts, featuring the monstrous anti-hero Sir Giles Overreach, a must-play part for every leading actor. This is actually rather a nice irony, since many of the plays in the Beaumont and Fletcher folio were part written by Massinger, but with no credit to his name. Such are the vicissitudes of literary fame. In this, the last of my lectures on Shakespeare and the classical tradition, I want to ask three questions. Where did Shakespeare's idea of fame come from? Did he want to achieve posthumous fame for himself? And when and by what means did he become famous? Now, that last question is a very large one that I've written about at length elsewhere in several books, including my book, The Genius of Shakespeare. So I'm going to give only the briefest of sketches uh, leading up to a moment of particular significance with which I will end. So where does the idea of fame come from? 
For Shakespeare's generation, the answer was, as I have sought to show for so many aspects of his culture, from classical antiquity. This is one of the pressure points in their dual inheritance of pagan values and the Holy Bible. In Christian terms, the only afterlife that matters is that of the soul in heaven or in hell. Worldly fame is evanescent, posthumous reputation immaterial. This could hardly be more different from the attitude of ancient Greece and Rome, where all the way back to Homeric epic, the primary purpose of poetry was to immortalise the heroic deeds of gods, demigods and heroes. In Homer, the keyword kleos denotes the idea of transcending mortality through fame. But the history of that idea is complicated. After Homer came Hesiod, who in his works and days contrasted the positive, immortalising sense of fame as glory or renown with, with a negative term, fema, suggestive of rumour or gossip. Fame is always accompanied by her dark shadow, ill repute, the blackening as opposed to burnishing of a name. Public figures, especially military heroes, are acutely conscious of this. Othello cares so deeply about his reputation, which Iago systematically destroys through malicious gossip, because his fame has been hard won against the odds in voyage and battle. In Virgil's Aeneid, Greek fema became Latin fama, and the word carries the double sense of fame and rumour. Aeneas announces himself as pious Aeneas, pious or dutiful Aeneas, whose fame or glory is noted in the heavens above. But in the second book of the Aeneid, in his narration to Dido of the fall of Troy, which so influenced Shakespeare's Rape of Lucrece, fama is among the watchwords of deceitful Sinon, the famed, the famed deserter from the Greeks, who insinuates himself into Troy, opens up the wooden horse and brings the destruction of the city. Sinon's lies are paradigmatic of fama as false rumour. He is the Iago of the Aeneid. For writers such as Virgil and Shakespeare, addicted to ambivalence and complexity, the double sense of fama holds a peculiar attraction. They give full rein to their muse of fire when glorying the fame of such heroic warriors as Aeneas, Othello and Coriolanus. But they also recognise that their own fictions, their art of spinning tales, is a form of rumour that puts them in the same camp as Sinon and Iago. In his fourth book, Virgil cuts away from Dido and Aeneas as they are making love in a cave during a storm. To what does he cut? A personification of fame in her malicious guise. She is described as rumour, the evil of the highest velocity. Word spreads through all the cities of Libya that Queen Dido is having a clandestine affair. It reaches Iarbus, son of Jupiter, who was once rejected by Dido. He tells Jupiter. Jupiter tells Mercury. Mercury reminds Aeneas that his destiny is to found a city in Italy, not waste his time with a love affair in Carthage. Rumour has ignited the chain reaction that will end with Dido on her own funeral pyre, stabbing herself with Aeneas' sword, at which point the language comes full circle and fama is invoked again. It clamor ad alta atria 
concusam bacata famor per urbem. A scream rises to the lofty roof. Rumour riots like a bacant through the stunned city. What does rumour look like? She is, in the words of the Elizabethan translation of Virgil, a horrible monster, immense, and beneath each plume of her body lurk so many vigilant eyes. Astounding to utter, they tattle so many tongues and mouths and so many ears here. This personification became a familiar figure in Renaissance iconography. You're looking at the top half of the title page of Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World, published in 1614, showing on one side Famar Bona, good fame, and on the other side Famar Mala, ill fame. Fame has tongues on her wings, infamy is spotted all over with them. And that latter image, the spotted one, perhaps gives us an idea of the costume of the character who speaks the prologue to Shakespeare's Henry IV Part II, which begins with the stage direction, Enter rumour painted full of tongues. Open your ears, for which of you will stop the vent of hearing when loud rumour speaks? I, from the Orient to the drooping West, making the wind my post-horse, still unfold the axe. The acts commenced on this ball of earth. Upon my tongue continual slanders ride, the which in every language I pronounce, stuffing the ears of men with false report. Rumour is a pipe blown by surmises, jealousies, conjectures, a blunt monster with uncounted heads. By spreading further rumours about rumour, Shakespeare's rumour is redoubling the already proven power of rumour. Ovid, in his Metamorphoses, gave Virgil's fame a home. In his 13th book, he describes the house of fame, suspended between earth and sky, built of brass, the better to diffuse as John Dryden would have it in his translation, the spreading sounds and multiply the news where echoes in repeated echoes play. Fame flew on wings borrowed from the figures of victory and glory. Chaucer rebuilt her house in a poem called The House of Fame. Petrarch, in his triumph of fame, bestowed upon her a trumpet as if she were an angel announcing the last judgment. Ben Jonson, in turn, staged a version of the Ovidian Chaucerian House of Fame in his Mask of Queens, a court mask performed at Whitehall in 1609 with King James's Queen participating. It has a, an anti-mask of witches doing a dance and then all of a sudden we hear a sound of loud music and the hags quite vanish and the whole face of the scene altered scarce suffering the memory of such a thing, and in the place of it appeared a glorious and magnificent building figuring the house of fame. There is a strong case for the argument that this coup de théâtre of the vanishing of one house, the arrival of another, gave Shakespeare the idea for the vanishing of the maskers in The Tempest and Prospero's speech about the fading of the insubstantial pageant of our little lives. So let me now turn to some examples of Shakespeare's treatment of fame in his plays. 
The prologue to Henry IV, part two, is only the most elaborate of his several references to the corrosive power of rumour. In Titus Andronicus, we hear that the emperor's court is like the house of fame, the palace full of tongues, of eyes and ears. And in a way, that's what we see acted out in the court at Elsinore in Hamlet, with all that overhearing and listening, eyes and ears behind the arras. In Troilus and Cressida, Ulysses chides Achilles because his ear is full of airy fame. And the collapse of fame is a key element of Shakespeare's undoing of the heroic Homeric idiom in that play. Achilles admits in the end that he will fail fame. In the Renaissance, a popular motto was space altera vitae, a second hope of life. It appears in all sorts of places as as an inscription or an emblem. Here's an example of it. Uh, dated 1590, Shakespeare's lifetime, carved above the entrance to Advocates Close on Edinburgh's Royal Mile. Whereas the Christian conscience is focused on the idea of the second life of our souls in heaven, the classical inheritance offers other wages on the future, predicated upon the idea of fame as the daughter of hope. In classical mythology, that is how the figure of fame uh, is given birth to. She's the daughter of hope. A monument, an inscription, a child, a work of art are all created in defiance of mortality. They are all gestures towards a hope of a second life in the future. Shakespeare's own monument in Holy Trinity Church not only preserves his image in stone with pen in hand, but also claims him as a successor to the great minds of antiquity. His own second sonnet ends with the idea that to beget a child is to be new made when thou art old and see thy blood warm when thou feelst it cold. And as his sonnet sequence unfolds, the poems themselves become the weapon against the bloody tyrant time. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Yet do thy worst, old time, despite thy wrong, my love shall in my verse live ever young. And yet to times in hope my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. Give my love fame faster than time wastes life, So thou prevent'st his scythe and crooked knife. Shakespeare began working on his sonnets around the time that he wrote Love's Labour's Lost. The King of Navarre begins that play with a bid for fame that shares many of the tropes of the sonnets. Let fame that all hunt after in their lives live registered upon our brazen tombs and then, dis- and then grace us in the disgrace of death when, spite of cormorant devouring time, the endeavour of this present breath may buy that honour which shall bait his scythe's keen edge and make us heirs of all eternity. These words proclaim instant allegiance to the classical as opposed to the Christian tradition. In Christianity, you become heir to eternity by way of heavenly salvation, not earthly fame. Fame achieved in life is no guarantee of grace in death. 
The brazen tomb is but a temporary resting place, thanks to the empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus. Navarre, who goes on to suggest that his little academe will achieve fame through the life of the mind, is signing up himself and his team as Renaissance humanists. We must grant that the play has a lot of fun mocking their aspirations. The life of the mind is rudely interrupted by the arrival of the ladies, and by the end of the play, the second life to which the gentlemen aspire is that achieved through making babies, though the ladies deprive them of that pleasure for a year. Meanwhile, the famous heroes of both the classical and the Judeo-Christian tradition are rendered pathetically by means of the farcical pageant of the nine worthies put on by the characters in the subplot. But for all the subsequent deflation, there is no denying the eloquence of that opening speech. The language is a tissue of allusions to the classical idea of fama, to the commonest forms of ancient epigraphy, namely an epitaph inscribed upon a tomb, to the Latin tag vivit post funera virtus, virtue outlives death, to the Ovidian image of personified time as devourer, tempus edax rerum, time the devourer of all things, to the Roman code of honour, to the Renaissance combining of chronos, the Greek personification of time, with chronos, the Greek equivalent of Saturn, the Roman god of harvest, which created the figure of father time with his scythe. And above all, to the Roman poet Horace's bold claim at the climax of his third book of odes, Exegi monumentum aere perennius, I have made a monument more enduring than brass. The essence of Horace's poem is, I will achieve immortality through my literary work. Ovid made the same bold claim at the end of the Metamorphoses, whereas Virgil ended the Aeneid promising immortality for the Emperor Augustus. Ovid confers it upon himself. The last word of his epic poem is, Vivam, I shall live. And the last word in the English translation used by Shakespeare is fame. So Ovid's last lines, Iamque opus exegi quod nec iovis ira nec ignis, nec poterit ferum, nec edax abonere vetustas, ore lega populae, perque omnia saecula fama, siquid habent veri vatum prasagia vivam. And in the English translation of Arthur Golding, Shakespeare's... Uh, favourite book in many ways. Now have I brought a work to end which neither Jove's fierce wrath, nor sword, nor fire, nor fretting age with all the force it hath are able to abolish quite. And time without all end, if poets are by prophecy about the truth may aim, my life shall everlastingly be lengthened still by fame." Shakespeare uses very similar language throughout his sonnets, but gives the impression of being more interested in bestowing immortality upon his beloved than upon himself. Nor Mars, his sword, nor war's quick fire shall burn, that's the same phraseology, but not me, but the living record of your memory. We may grant that Thomas Thorpe, the publisher who saw Shakespeare's sonnets into print in 1609, prefaced them with a dedication laid out in the style of a Roman monumental inscription, including the epithet, Our Ever-Living Poet, 
suggesting the idea of immortalization through publication. But we do not know that Shakespeare authorised that publication. So that raises a question that the great romantic essayist William Hazlitt asked in 1814. He wrote an essay called On Posthumous Fame, Whether Shakespeare Was Influenced by a Love of It? Question mark. Hazlitt argued that the love of fame is culturally determined. We only crave fame if we are working in a tradition that values fame. He writes, when those who succeed in distant generations read with wondering rapture the works which the bards and sages of antiquity have bequeathed to them, when they contemplate the imperishable power of intellect which survives the stroke of death and the revolutions of empire, it is then that the passion for fame becomes an habitual feeling in the mind and that men naturally wish to excite the same sentiments of admiration in others which they themselves have felt and to transmit their names with the same honour to posterity. Thus, according to Hazlitt, the works of self-conscious admirers of the classics, such as Dante, Chaucer, Spencer and Milton, are suffused with a desire for posthumous fame. Not so Shakespeare, he argues, on the grounds that the love of fame is a form of egotism, whereas Shakespeare seemed scarcely to have an individual existence of his own, but to borrow that of others at will, to pass successively through every variety of untried being, to be now Hamlet, now Othello, now Lear, now Falstaff, now Ariel. This was Hazlitt's first articulation of his idea of Shakespeare's lack of positive identity, his absorption into all his characters, an idea that John Keats would hear Hazlitt give a lecture about and that would inspire Keats to describe the true poet as a chameleon and to create an opposition between what he called the Wordsworthy and egotistical sublime and the Shakespearean negative capability. Well, Hazlitt is certainly correct in saying that there is no Shakespearean equivalent to Ovid's Vivam, I shall live. And for a long time, there was a scholarly view that Shakespeare could not have been interested in posthumous fame since he did not bother to, bother to publish his works. A contrast is often made with Ben Jonson, who in 1616 carefully oversaw the publication of his own plays, poems and court masks in a volume called The Works of Benjamin Jonson, a title deliberately echoing the notion of the collected works, opera, of a classical author. Published in grand folio format, its title page was branded with triumphal arch, sculptural figures and Latin inscriptions, all designed to suggest a classical work destined for enduring fame. Shakespeare, the story goes, had no such aspiration. He wrote for the theatre, Half the number of his plays remained unpublished in his lifetime, and of the other half, many were put into print only as a way of displacing poor quality pirated texts. Now, recent scholarship has challenged this narrative, suggesting that Shakespeare may well have been a much more literary dramatist than has customarily been supposed, and indeed that in the case of his longer tragedies, such as Hamlet, Coriolanus and Richard III, the editions printed in his lifetime were deliberately fashioned as reading texts of a length that could not have been performed in full within the time constraints of the public theatre. As with so many aspects of Shakespeare, we will never be able to recover his overt intentions on this matter. Besides, desire for print does not necessarily mean desire for posthumous fame. 
proprietorial rights and desire for money could equally well have played a part. But what we can say is that some of Shakespeare's friends began making him resemble a classic. The process started early with his schoolfellow, Richard Field, fellow pupil of the Stratford Grammar School, who went to London, became a printer, and printed Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare's first published work, with a title page ornament portraying a figure resembling a classical goddess, possibly Juno, since she is flanked by peacocks, together with smaller figures blowing horns, suggestive of a trumpet of fame. Field also included his own emblem and its motto, Ancora Spei, the anchor of hope, again getting that idea of hope for the future. And either he or Shakespeare himself furnished an epigraph in the form of a quotation from Ovid's Amores. Vilia mirator valgus, nihi flavus Apollo, pocula castalia, plena minister aqua. Let the rabble admire worthless things. May golden Apollo supply me with cups full of water from the Castalian spring. So Shakespeare is ushered into print, not as author writing for the vulgar, the rabble of the public theatre, but as a successor of an admired classical exemplar, paying homage to Apollo, the god of poetry, and seeking inspiration from the Castalian spring on Mount Parnassus that was sacred to the muses. The title page of the first folio of Shakespeare's plays, which I showed you earlier, the text of which was overseen by his fellow actors, Hemmings and Condell, does not have the pretension of Johnson's. It is simply an engraving of the author with no elaborate show of classical architecture. But the prefatory matter in the creation of which Johnson himself played a leading part fully institutes the idea of Shakespeare's posthumous fame. Johnson supplied a dedicatory poem entitled To the Memory of My Beloved, the author, Master William Shakespeare, and what he hath left us. And author is printed in capital, saying he's not just a playwright for the theatre, he's an author. And it returns again and again to this idea of the contemporary dramatist outdoing his antique forebears, joining them on Mount Parnassus, or even displacing them from the Pantheon. Leave thee alone for the comparison of all that insolent Greece or haughty Rome sent forth, or since did from their ashes come. The merry Greek tart Aristophanes, neat Terence, witty Plautus, now not please, but antiquated and deserted lie, as if they were not of nature's family. Johnson even goes so far as to compare Shakespeare with the very gods of poetry and communication, Apollo and Mercury. Similarly, in another of the prefatory poems, Leonard Diggs, who was brought up in a village neighbouring Stratford-upon-Avon, attaches to Shakespeare the lines that Ovid, whom he calls Nasso, P. Ovidius Nasso, had written about himself at the end of the Metamorphoses. Nor fire, nor cankering age, as Nasso said of his, thy wit-fraught book shall once invade. Be sure, our Shakespeare, thou canst never die but crowned with laurel, live eternally. Classical idea of the great figure with the laurel wreath. Whereas Ben Jonson's works only got a single reprint after his death, Shakespeare's folio was reprinted three times before the end of the century. And through the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, there was a major new edition of his complete works, once every 20 years or so. That is a mark of the posthumous fame he has achieved. 
In his dedicatory poem, Johnson described Shakespeare as a star whose influence would chide or cheer the future course of British drama. Once the folio was in print, the plays began to influence not just for theatre, but poetry more generally. The works of John Milton, notably his mask Comus, were steeped in Shakespearean language. Indeed, the young Milton's first published poem was a sonnet prefixed to the second edition of the folio, in which Shakespeare is said to have built himself a livelong monument in the form of his plays. The years after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, when the theatres reopened, were characterised by a conflicting attitude towards Shakespeare. On the positive side, he was invoked for his inspirational native genius, used to support claims for English naturalness as opposed to French artifice, and for the moderns against the ancients. In his sweeping essay on dramatic poesy, poet laureate John Dryden described Shakespeare as the man who of all modern and perhaps ancient poets had the largest and most comprehensive soul. The learned Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, praised Shakespeare for his extraordinary ability to enter into his vast array of characters, to express the diverse and different humours or natures of all the passions in mankind. However, during this period, the courtly elite had spent their years of exile during the Cromwellian time in France and come under the influence of a highly refined neoclassical theory of artistic decorum, according to which tragedy should be kept apart from comedy and high style from low, with dramatic unity demanding obedience to strict laws. For this reason, Dryden and his contemporaries took considerable liberties in polishing and improving Shakespeare's plays for performance. So, for example, according to the law of poetic justice, wholly innocent characters should not be allowed to die. Nahum Tate therefore rewrote King Lear in 1681 with a happy ending in which Cordelia marries Edgar. He also omitted the character of the fool on the grounds that such a figure was beneath the dignity of high tragedy. The more formal classicism of Ben Jonson and the courtly romances of Beaumont and Fletcher answered more readily to the Frenchified standards of the Restoration Theatre. Actors, though, were demonstrating that the most rewarding roles were the Shakespearean ones. Thomas Betterton, the greatest player of the age, had enormous success as Hamlet, Sir Toby Belch, Henry VIII, Macbeth, Lear, Falstaff, Othello. Playhouse scripts of individual plays found their way into print. The folio was pr printed a third and fourth time. So by the end of the century, Shakespeare was well entrenched in English cultural life. But he was not yet the unique genius that he would become. Betterton's veneration for the memory of Shakespeare was such that late in his life he travelled to Warwickshire to find out what he could about the dramatist's origins. He passed a store of anecdotes to the poet, playwright and eventual poet laureate Nicholas Rowe, who wrote an account of the life of William Shakespeare, a biographical sketch that he published in 1709 in the first of the six volumes of his Works of Shakespeare, a collection usually regarded as the first modern edition of the plays in the sense that the spelling was modernised and the editorial hand uh, intervened. And as you see from the illustration, the engraving opposite the title page there is adorned with the trumpets of fame. Fame is above Shakespeare with one trumpet and there's another one just below the image of him. 
Rowe's biography offered a mixture of truth and myth, calculated to represent Shakespeare as a man of the people. This is where we learn about young Will um, being withdrawn from school when his father falls on hard times, getting into bad company, stealing deer from the park of Sir Thomas Lucy, being forced to leave town and become a dramatist and actor. Rowe's account is symptomatic of how every age reinvents Shakespeare in his own image. The road from the provinces to London was a familiar one in the 18th century. Samuel Johnson and David Garrick walked it in real life. Henry Fielding's Tom Jones in fiction. Shakespeare serves as the exemplar of the writer who achieves success and reward from his pen alone. For writers such as Alexander Pope and Samuel Johnson, struggling in the transition from the age of patronage to that of Grub Street professionalism, Shakespeare offered not only a body of poetic invention and a gallery of living characters, but also an inspirational career trajectory. If we had to identify a single decade in which the cult of Shakespeare took root, in which his celebrity and influence grew to outstrip those of his contemporaries once and for all, it would probably be the 1730s, when there was a proliferation of cheap mass-market editions, the plays began taking over the theatrical repertoire, the shapely legs of actresses in cross-dressed breeches parts in the comedies brought people flocking to London. And then there came the arrival of David Garrick, the greatest actor of the age. The actor who may justly be claimed to be the father of what came to be called bardolatry. Garrick made his debut as an understudy playing Richard III and then went on to take the full gamut of Shakespearean roles to manage his acting company, supervising the scripts, directing the plays. And this gave unprecedented respectability to the profession of actor and it effectively invented the modern theatre. That actor-manager tradition he inaugurated stretches down to Laurence Olivier, Kenneth Branagh. It was in the art of self-promotion that Garrick was unique. His public image was secured by William Hogarth's great painting of him in Richard III, confronted with his nightmares on the eve of the Battle of Bosworth Field. And that was the most frequently engraved, widely reproduced theatrical image of the 18th century. It effectively makes Shakespearean painting comparable to the genre of history painting. The climax of Garrick's career in Bardolatry was the jubilee that he organised to commemorate the bicentenary of Shakespeare's birth, although it actually took place five years late in 1769 to celebrate the opening of a new town hall in Stratford. Scores of fashionable Londoners descended on Stratford and the literary tourist industry began here. Local entrepreneurs did good business in the sale of Shakespearean relics, such as souvenirs supposedly cut from the wood of the great bard's mulberry tree, which clearly was a remarkably prolific tree to judge from the <laughs> amount of uh, wooden uh, relics that came from it. Not since the marketing in medieval times of fragments of a true cross had a single tree yielded so much wood. The Jubilee programme included a grand procession of Shakespearean characters, a masked ball, a horse race and a firework display. In true English fashion, the outdoor events were washed out by torrential rain. At the climax of the festivities, Garrick performed his own poem, an ode upon dedicating a building and erecting a statue to Shakespeare, set to music by Thomas Arne. And in the manner of a stage theatrical happening, 
Garrick arranged for a member of the audience, a fellow actor, dressed as a French fop, to complain, as French connoisseurs of literary taste had complained for generations, that Shakespeare was vulgar, provincial and overrated. And that gave Garrick the opportunity to voice his grand defence of Shakespeare. Though the whole business was much mocked in newspaper reports, caricatures and stage farces, it generated enormous publicity for both Garrick and Shakespeare across Britain and the continent. The Jubilee did more than turn Stratford-upon-Avon into a tourist attraction. It inaugurated the very idea of a summer arts festival. Garrick had already made his own fame synonymous with Shakespeare's. In 1741, a statue of Shakespeare was dedicated in Westminster Abbey. So whereas back in 1616 it had been Beaumont in the Abbey, Beaumont's uh, monument was summarily removed, Shakespeare, who had been buried in Stratford, is memorialised in the Abbey with the famous statue that is still there today. He's finally displaced Beaumont in the National Shrine. And Garrick trumped this by commissioning his own secular shrine to his hero. In 1756, he completed his Temple to Shakespeare, a folly in the grounds of his villa by the Thames near Richmond. And it's, it's recently been restored, and you must all go and see it. An octagonal domed building in the style of the Pantheon in Rome, with an ionic portico in the Palladian style. Its centrepiece was a marble statue of the playwright, for which Garrick posed himself. <laughs> there it is. There were also a number of relics, such as a chair made from the mulberry tree. <laughs> this was Shakespeare's personal house of fame. In an age when orthodox religion was facing severe challenges, the cult of Shakespeare was becoming a secular faith. Thanks to the enthusiasm of poets, critics and translators, such as Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Hazlitt and John Keats in England, Goethe and the Schlegel brothers in Germany, Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas in France, during the 19th century era of Romanticism, the grammar school boy from the edge of the Forest of Arden became the supreme deity, not just of poetry and drama, but of high culture itself. Shakespeare's unique fame was assured. But perhaps the development that did more than any other to give him high cultural status, to make him classical as well as popular, was his introduction into the education system. That, after all, was the place where the classics of antiquity survived, Virgil, Ovid, Horace, Cicero, Seneca and the rest. So it is that we are brought full circle to where my series of six lectures on Shakespeare and the classics began. Those of you who have followed over the months will recall that I began by telling the story of the establishment of the Gresham Professorship of Rhetoric here in the City of London, round the corner from the house in Bishopsgate where Shakespeare was lodging. And how throughout this series I've demonstrated that the classical devices of rhetoric and memory, of allusions to the great authors and myths, were perhaps the most important key to Shakespeare's art. His works had their birth in his Latin lessons in that Stratford-upon-Avon schoolroom. But English literature did not become the object of formal academic study until the second half of the 18th century. In England, only men who subscribed to the Articles of Faith of the Church of England could attend the ancient universities of Oxford and Cambridge, where the language of instruction was Latin and the humanities side of the curriculum was confined to the ancients. So the classics belonged to the posh. 
religious nonconformists or dissenters accordingly set up academies of their own, where what they called belle lettre, polite literature, was taught in the English language. The teaching of what we now call English literature was one of John Aiken's duties when he took up the tutorship in Belle Lettre at the Warrington Academy in 1758. So there's a very good pub quiz question for you. When did English literature begin as an academic discipline in Warrington in 1758? <laughs> Aiken was succeeded in the literature tutorship at Warrington by the radical theologian and scientist Joseph Priestley, who welcomed the French Revolution. So from its very institutional origin, the discipline of English literature was associated with dissent, with the democratisation of education, and with resistance to the elitism of Oxbridge. And the new discipline provided educational opportunities for women, when Priestley left Warrington, the tutorship in Belle Lettre passed to the Unitarian minister William Enfield, who created an anthology called The Speaker. Got a title page for you there. Subtitled Miscellaneous Pieces Selected from the Best English Writers and Disposed Under Proper Heads with a View to Facilitate the Improvement of Youth in Reading and Speaking. And that became the standard textbook for the teaching of eloquence and elocution throughout the land, at girls' schools as well as boys. In 1811, uh, Aitken's daughter, Anna Barbold, published The Female Speaker, a companion volume for young women. Enfield divided literature up into various categories, narrative, orations, dialogues, descriptions, and pathetic pieces, pieces addressed to the emotions. And the idea was that a thorough grounding in these 400 pages of extracts would improve the vocabulary and articulacy of pupils while also cultivating their emotions and their moral sense. And Shakespeare was by far the most represented author, right across the full gamut of literary kinds, especially so in the climactic section of passages appealing to the emotions. Elocution the study of classic English texts in order to improve the grasp of language and speech for dissenters was the descendant of the teaching of rhetoric in the Elizabethan schoolroom. Enfield laid the foundations for what the compiler of a similar anthology, uh, Vicemus Knox, it's called Elegant Extracts, called a liberal education. Its beneficiaries were not the ruling class who continued to be schooled in the Greek and Roman classics until well into the 20th century, but middle-class nonconformists, women, and soon the working classes, because radical chartist educational academies and more conservative working men's colleges followed the same trap, put Shakespeare at the centre of their curriculum. And then it was extended to colonial subjects, in the 1830s, the Indian education system was reformed. And again, Shakespeare was at the centre of the education of the subaltern class in India. Looked at from one point of view, the teaching of elocution and the emergent discipline of English literature were intended to instil conformity of linguistic usage and moral values. But for non-conformist pupils in the dissenting academies, for Victorian labouring class autodidacts, for the first women to gain access to universities, for colonial subjects such as Gandhi and Nehru, and for mid-20th century northern working class grammar school boys and girls, the study of English literature was as often a crucible of liberal thought 
and an engine of social mobility. And from Enfield's speaker onward, the author at the heart of that discipline, the one enduringly canonical writer, has been William Shakespeare. It is the ultimate mark of his fame that he is to us what those ancient authors from Rome were to him, the basis of a liberal education, the core of the studia humanitas. He is our singular classic. Thank you. Thank you.